1: agreement in principle. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy reach a deal to raise the debt limit. We
2: still have a lot of work to do.
1: But with lawmakers on both sides skeptical, do they have the votes to actually pass it? I'll speak exclusively with House Progressive Leader Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and GOP Congressman Dusty Johnson next. And room to grow? More Republican presidential hopefuls jump in. I'm running to lead
3: our great American comeback. I'm the candidate the far left fears the most.
1: But with the former president dominating the polls, can they cut into his lead? Republican Governor Chris Sununu joins me exclusively. Plus, fallen heroes. This Memorial Day, veterans reflect on their comrades who did not come home.
2: I think about them probably every day almost. Yeah, really. You don't ever forget it.
1: A look at some of the incredible Americans we lost at war, coming up. Hi, I'm Dick Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is waiting to exhale. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy last night announced that they have struck an agreement in principle to lift the nation's borrowing cap and avert a looming fiscal catastrophe with the U.S. set to run out of money to pay its bills as early as Monday, June 5th. But a big question remains, can they now get this deal passed in time? President Biden acknowledged last night that the agreement is, quote, a compromise, which means not everyone gets what they want, unquote. And already we know about deep concerns from progressives and from conservatives. McCarthy, on a call with Republicans last night, reportedly said the Democrats did not get a single thing they wanted in the deal, And McCarthy emphasized what the GOP got in exchange for raising the debt limit, capping non-defense domestic spending, canceling billions in IRS funding, and temporarily imposing work requirements on childless, able-bodied adults younger than 55 who receive food stamps. President Biden says the agreement protects Democratic priorities and legislative accomplishments. One could also note that the deal lifts the nation's debt limit for two years, avoiding a messy fight just ahead of the 2024 election. And in general, the cuts are not as deep as many House Republicans wanted and many House Democrats feared. Joining us now, a Republican leader who helped negotiate this deal, Congressman. Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. So what what can you tell us about the specifics of what's in this agreement? And and why do you think it's a good deal for House Republicans to vote for? Yeah,
2: yeah, I think you did a good job of providing the outlines as far as the spending. I mean, this is going to cut non-defense and non-VA spending back to 2022 levels. That is a big get for Republicans. That's what we had in Limit, Save, Grow. And it's going to save $1.5 trillion over the course of the next 10 years. It also, for six years, establishes caps at 1% so we can slow the growth of spending. But, Jake, two things I want to hit that your graphic did not have. First off, late last night, a new provision was agreed to by the White House uh, and the Speaker, whereby we're going to unlock American energy. We are going to provide shot clocks uh, for NEPA review, environmental review of 12 months and 24 months, that is going to help. Whether you like renewable energy or traditional energy, this is going to help unlock that energy. Speed
1: up the process. By Speed which up people- the process. Yeah, okay. You know,
2: Germany and France, the same kind of project they would get done in two years, it takes us seven years, Jake. So we do need reform here. And obviously Democrats like uh, Buttigieg and Manchin have talked about doing this. Well, now we're going to get it done. And then finally, uh, just a big thing, it's, it's administrative pay When you have the administration step forward and propose some vast new regulation that's going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars, now they have to go find the money within the existing bureaucracy. It is a huge strike against a growing regulatory state.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that members of Congress complain about the most, not just with Democratic administrations, but Republicans passing a law and not allocating money uh, to make sure the law goes through. We're hearing a lot of grumbling from conservatives in your caucus. Uh, Congressman Ken Buck, called this uh, deal a debt ceiling surrender. Congressman Ralph Norman said it was insanity. Congressman Bob Goode tweeted that no one claiming to be a conservative could justify a yes vote. Their basic criticism uh, is that McCarthy gave up too much and uh, could have gotten more. What, what, What do you say to that?
2: I'm the head of a group of 75 pragmatic conservatives called the Main Street Caucus. And so when we say conservatives are against it, I want to make it clear. I don't know a single one of the mainstream caucus House conservatives. Freedom caucus conservatives? Uh, well, and say. even some of them. I Listen, there will be Freedom Caucus people who vote for this package. So when you're saying that conservatives have concerns, it is really uh, the most colorful conservatives. Some of those guys you mentioned didn't vote for the thing when it was uh, kind of a Republican wish list, limit, save, grow. Those votes were never really in play. We get that, but uh, overwhelmingly, Republicans in this conference are going to support the deal. How could they not? It is a fantastic deal.
1: How many votes do you think you're going to get? How many votes can you afford to lose?
2: We're starting the whipping process now. I have talked to maybe between two and three dozen Republican members I have not heard, had a single one of them tell me I can't support that. Well,
1: I just I just gave you the names of three you can call maybe. Well, uh, Buck, Norman and Good who who, who yeah, might have some thoughts.
2: I'm not sure having Dusty Johnson call Bob Good is the perfect way to get uh-huh. his vote. But and let's be honest, Bob Good will not vote for this thing, and it doesn't matter if Mother Teresa came back from the dead and called him. He's not voting for it. He was never going to. We're good. This is going to pass.
1: So, seventy members of the Main Street Caucus that you mentioned are they all going to vote for it? You think?
2: I would be surprised. I mean, I haven't talked to every single one of them, but everybody I'm talking to, Jake, understands that when you're reducing spending, that when you're uh, peeling back the regulatory state, uh, when you are unlocking American energy, and when you're getting people back to work, this is a
1: big deal. What concessions did McCarthy make to Biden and Democrats to get it across the finish line?
2: That is kind of the amazing part to me. There were no wins for Democrats. If you look at at the state of policy today in this country... And you say, okay, we're going into a deal and one side's going to get half and the other side's going to get half. Republicans will pull their half this way. Democrats will pull their their half that way. There is nothing after the passage of this bill that will be more liberal or more progressive than it is today. It's a remarkable conservative accomplishment.
1: Do you, are you going to need Democratic votes to get it passed in the House?
2: There will be some Democrats who will vote for this. Uh,
1: but will you need them, I guess is my point.
2: Well, we, we only have 222 Republicans. Right. And I think it is certainly plausible that we could get 218, although I think it's going to look a lot better for this country if we can put a big number up on the board. Democrats like Joe Biden and some in the House coming together with Republicans to pass this. That's going to be better for the country.
1: So uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, the head of the House Progressive Caucus, a Democrat. will uh, be you a
2: no-vote know, too.
1: Well, I don't know what she's going to vote, but, I, but you know, one question I'm sure is on her mind, which is why was it so important for House Republicans to have this work requirement for able-bodied uh, uh, food stamp recipients who don't have dependents, but not important to get uh, recor- corporations to at least pay some taxes if they made a profit?
2: Well, we raised taxes, not me, but uh, Joe Biden and Democrats raised taxes on corporations by $700 billion last year. There was not, frankly, an appetite among Republicans to allow Democrats to do that again. What there is an appetite for is making sure that we're helping people find that pathway out of poverty. I grew up in a family of modest means. I saw my parents busting their butts every single day. And I know it was those efforts that helped me escape poverty. You cannot escape poverty without work. You just can't. It's got to be a part of the solution. These requirements are, 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 are not mean. They're not onerous. It's 20 hours a week work. Training, education, or volunteering at a local food bank for people who are able bodied, not pregnant, don't have kids at home, live in an area where there are jobs. We know they work. These requirements have been in place since 1996 when Bill Clinton signed them into
1: law. All right, Congresswoman, I mean, Congressman Dusty Johnson, Uh, thank you so much. I now turn to Congresswoman and Progressive Caucus Chair, Pramila Jayapal, who has had concerns about some of the measures that end up in this bill. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Congresswoman, so the specific legislative language still being worked on. Uh, President Biden says this agreement is a compromise, which means not everyone gets what they want. You just heard Congressman Johnson say Democrats didn't get anything in the deal. Are you going to support that? He also said that he he thinks you're going to vote against it. How are you going to (laughs) vote?
4: Well, I don't know yet, Jake, because I haven't seen the text. You know, I'm not a big fan of in principle or frameworks. That's always, uh, you know, a problem if you can't see the exact legislative text. And we're all trying to wade through spin right now. I think that's certainly what you heard from my good colleague on the other side of the aisle, is a lot of spin. But I think it's going to come down to what the legislative text is. I think at the end of the day, though, the American people have to understand that we are at the brink of default. We, have, we don't have a deal yet. We're not sure how many Republican votes can be produced. And it is all because Republicans said that they wanted to cut the deficit. And let's be clear that what they got from this was not that. Um, they may have gotten other things. I'm, I'm not happy with some of the things I'm hearing about, but they are not cutting the deficit uh, and they are not cutting spending because... If you think about the fact that they've agreed to increase Pentagon spending, number one, they've agreed to increase VA spending, number two, and while there are some fiscal uh, you know, calculations that are being made around what non-defense discretionary spending is, and by the way, for people that are listening to that, that's a lot of mumbo-jumbo, that's basic spending on things like health care, education, child care. All the things you care about is what Republicans want to cut. And they even took back $10 billion from the IRS that was supposed to go to taking on wealthy tax cheats in order to make regular Americans pay for wealthy people to be able to continue to get tax breaks. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, you got to ask yourself— What was all the drama for? Because they didn't get what they said they wanted. We knew that was never actually what was on the table.
1: So the deal, as you know, expands food stamp work requirements for able-bodied adults under 55 who do not have dependents. This goes throughout 2030. This excludes veterans and those experiencing homelessness. You have said that your caucus would not support a bill with work requirements that, quote, hurt poor people. Does this deal do that? Is this a deal breaker for you?
4: I don't know because I haven't seen the language. And what, um, first of all, let me say, terrible policy, absolutely terrible policy, does not reduce spending, actually, by some estimates, creates a burden on administrative spending that is actually worse for, you know, for the overall cost of a program like that. Number two, it is about... People who are hungry, people who just need a little bit of temporary assistance. And um, we are one of the Only countries in the world, if not the only country in the world that is an industrialized country that puts any requirements on people who just want food. So, very bad policy does not save money, and by the way, does not work. We've seen reams of data that show that when you put these work requirements in, um, they're really just administrative red tape that Mm -hmm. prevent the people who need help from getting help. Um, What I'm not sure on and what I'm looking at right now, and I need to see the legislative text is what it means in terms of the exemptions that were put in um, for veterans, for folks who are experiencing homelessness, for people who are coming out of foster care. Uh, Those are three exemptions that were included. And so what do the numbers look like at the end of the day? I'm not sure. However, it is bad policy. I told the president that directly when he called me last week on Wednesday. Um, that this is saying to poor people and people who are in need that we don't trust them. And the average amount of assistance for snap, for example, is six dollars a day, Jake. Mm-hmm. I mean we're talking about six dollars a day. and And I think it is uh, really unfortunate that the president opened the door to this and um, while at the end of the day, you know perhaps this will, because of the exemptions, perhaps, It will be okay. I can't commit to that. I I really don't know. Um, And our caucus, and it's not just the progressives across the ideological spectrum, including problem solvers, by the way, Mm. uh, people feel that this is bad policy. So, so uh, it's it's very unfortunate that it's even made its way into the discussion.
1: So, but what I'm hearing from you, though, is that if the exemptions are as I described, which uh, for uh, homeless, for veterans, it's possible that you're willing to hold your nose and vote for it. To avoid a default, and, 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 and again, it all depends on what you see in the tax day. Nobody should take uh, I, anything yeah, cemented as cemented. I, I just, in, you go that's ahead.
4: right. That's right. No, I just don't know because the numbers of people that are affected um, are, you know, is is really what this is. We have to look at that and if there is anyway i don't i don't want to get into suppositions because i just need to see the text and that's the other thing how is it possible that we are at a place where the debt ceiling and by the way jake two countries in the world have a debt ceiling the united states and i think it's denmark and they do not they tie it to a percentage of gdp debt to a percentage of gdp and our net interest payments have actually are you know below what yeah. the historical 50 year so average is why didn't so democrats it's why did, we were didn't, even in this situation sure but like
1: you know you guys you guys controlled the house the senate and the white house until until january why didn't you just take care of this in november or december
4: well as you know that's what i pushed for that's what the progressive caucus put i know but on why did, but why didn't they? that was public Well, I think it's because we didn't have 50 votes in the Senate. Um, You know, unfortunately, we are also governed by a couple of conservative Democrats uh, and or independents in the Senate who refuse to take the actions that we need to take. And that's I think that's why we ended up in the situation we're in. Um, That's why we need a bigger majority in the Senate of people who are actually going to continue to do what the country needs and what our constitutional obligation is. Because listen, the the debt ceiling, and we've explained this ad nauseum, but I just think it's important to say it again. Mm. We go through an appropriations process. You know this very well, Jake. We go through an appropriations process. We argue that is where the majority in the House and the Senate get to uh, you know, figure out Legislate. who's going to negotiate what, right? right. And Legislate exactly, and at the end of that process, we come up with something. We pass it through a budget. We pass appropriations bills, and the debt ceiling is essentially about implementing what Congress has already passed.
1: Yeah, no, it's paying for paying for money already spent. Yeah, one hundred percent.
4: That's right, and and I think at the end of the day, this is going to make it easier, hopefully, to take the debt ceiling off the table permanently. You know, Brendan Boyle, our ranking member on budget, has a great bill. I'm a co-sponsor of that bill. To give the authority to the Treasury Secretary to be able to just raise the debt ceiling in accordance with Uh, whatever Congress has passed. That's really all we're saying is Congress passes this stuff. It should just be raised automatically. We should not allow people to continue to take us hostage.
1: Quick question before you go, uh, Congresswoman uh, Speaker McCarthy. He briefed House Republicans last night. House Democrats aren't scheduled to be briefed until 5 p.m. later today. Have you spoken with Democratic Leader Jeffries or President Biden since the deal was announced last night?
4: I have not spoken with either of them, though I have been texting with Leader Jeffries. Um, however, I did get a lengthy briefing from uh, a, a top White House official. Lale Brainard called me immediately when the when the deal was released last night. Um, to tell me it sounds like uh, perhaps not everybody was on the same page in terms of when the deal was going to be announced. And, you know, I think that there was supposed to be a final review. So I think it got announced to Republicans quicker than was expected. But I did get a, a, a briefing. I still have questions, though. And at the end of the day, I don't like frameworks. I think they are really problematic in terms of Being able to make a decision, it's fine to say we've reached an agreement in principle, but all of the text matters. And there are so many pieces of this that we need to look at in terms of what the spending uh, is exactly like, because my understanding is we're essentially held harmless at 23 levels um, it will, uh, you know, it is still not ideal, but not that different than what a so, CR would be. I think for me, the big questions are around what is the, what are the changes to NEPA? I understand they're pretty minor, but I'd like to see those. Yeah. And then what does this work requirements piece look like?
1: So I know you hate it when I do this, but I'm going to give you a yes or no question right now. And the yes or no question is all the Democrats.
4: <laughs> I may or may not answer. Well, <laughs>
1: that's fair. But, uh, Democrats watching right now uh, at the white house, uh, your, your friend, Hakeem Jeffries, others. Do they still have to worry about the progressive caucus and whether or not your caucus yes. will support? Yes, they do. OK, Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you yes, so much. Yes, they
4: have to worry. Yes, yeah,
1: they have to worry. OK, well, you heard, you, you heard the lady. Uh, thank you so much, Congresswoman. Good, good to see you, as always.
4: Thank you, Jake.
1: Who got the upper hand on the debt deal? We're going to have more analysis of the agreement and whether it can pass coming up. And next up, some presidential politics. Is the GOP field about to get even bigger? Governor Chris Sununu from the great state of New Hampshire joins me to talk about his big decision and the lane he sees for himself next. Welcome back to State of the Union. A growing number of Republicans are attempting to knock Donald Trump off his throne as the party's leader. And plenty more are still considering jumping into the race, including my next guest, who sees a different path forward for the party. Not as focused on culture wars or restrictive abortion bans, focused on other matters. Joining us now to discuss, New Hampshire governor, potential, potential presidential candidate, Chris Sununu. Uh, governor Sununu, good to see you. I want to get to 2024 in a moment, but first I want to get your reaction to this debt deal. Republicans pushed to add new work requirements for some low-income Americans under the age of 55. People on food stamps last year, 69,000. New Hampshireites received food stamps. Uh, Are you concerned at all by by what impact this might have, especially at a time when food prices are already so high because of inflation? Well, let's start with
5: the fact that they got a deal done. Uh, it, it's a miracle. I mean, release the doves, right? Washington actually is is moving forward. Both sides seem pretty frustrated, which means it's probably a pretty good deal, uh, actually. The 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 fact that we have to have the threat of a of, of defaulting on our debt, which is one of the worst things that could happen in America economically, by the way. The fact that you have to get there to do some basic things. I thought you asked the exact right question. Why didn't the Democrats make different changes when they had the chance to do it, or why didn't Republicans make certain changes uh, back in 17 and 18 when they when they had the chance? It, it's like Washington. Doesn't know how to react until they have to react. So in terms of what's being negotiated, the food stamps and all of that, those are kind of small pieces. They're, they're important to be sure, but they're they're not they're not deal breakers, so to say. And, and you got to give a little to get a lot. So I give both Kevin McCarthy and, and the Democrat side credit for actually getting getting something done uh, and not waiting till eleven fifty nine fifty nine, so to say.
1: All right, uh, let's talk about twenty twenty four. After a glitchy Twitter launch, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now officially running for the GOP presidential nomination. You've not been shy about criticizing him in the past. You've called him a big government Republican. You hit him over his focus on culture war issues. Um, you recently met with Governor DeSantis in New Hampshire. What do you think of his launch? Do you think he has what it takes to beat Trump and then Biden?
5: Uh, look, yeah. Look, I think Governor Sanders is a very good governor. Uh, he's, his campaign is just getting underway. There's a lot, lot to play. He's on the ground here, which I give him credit. You know, coming, to uh, kind of doing the the retail politics in New Hampshire, and I think he'll do it also in in Iowa. I think he's coming back in a couple weeks. So um, he's doing so far. He's doing what he needs to do to get his campaign underway. Uh, so I mean, you kind of we'll, we'll see where it all goes. Other candidates will get into the race, and what what we've all learned is you can't prevent candidates from getting in. Everyone says, oh, there's going to be too many folks getting in. And I mean, there could be 12 people that get in. The key, the discipline, is getting out. The discipline is come November, late December. If you're sitting in, in low, you know, single digits, get your butt out of the race. Let's narrow this thing down to two or three candidates and really figure out where the party's going to go. I think when you do that, then the options will really present themselves. But of course, you know, pre- former President Trump is doing better than anybody thought. Uh, he's playing this victim card. Uh, the media, the DA in New York, all of these things have kind of worked in his favor very much. He's playing the, the I mean, that, just the fact that we're talking about Donald Trump as a victim, I mean, that's, that's unique in itself. Um, But that isn't lasting necessarily. That doesn't mean that the support he has today turns into a vote nine months from now.
1: If you think that culture war issues uh, are, are too much of a focus for candidates like DeSantis or Trump, what do you think they should be focusing on? What would you theoretically, if you decide to run, focus on?
5: Sure. So look, I'm, I'm just about good government, right? I'm about efficiency in government and low spending, low taxation, individual freedoms and responsibilities. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about the culture war stuff. Don't get me wrong. I just don't believe government is going to solve a culture war, right? You got to be sure you lead on it. You can talk about it. But if your top priority is culture wars and not managing spending, creating uh, more opportunities at a localized level, draining the swamp, which I was told it was going to happen, never happened a bit. You know, former President Trump blew that one. Securing the border... Former President Trump blew that one. Uh, fiscal discipline, he, former President Trump blew that one too. So I just think there's a lot of things within the mantle of, what, of the Republican Party uh, that, that we've kind of lost focus on, right? We, we have all these other issues that kind of get in our way. They clog up, I think, what just good, practical, efficient government should be. And ultimately, that's what America wants with the right attitude, the right approach, and someone that can just cross the aisle when they need to to make sure we're getting stuff done.
1: Um, Governor DeSantis said that on day one as president, he would consider pardoning people convicted of crimes related to January 6th, potentially even uh, former President Trump. um, Former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney tweeted, quote, any candidate who says they will pardon January 6th defendants is not qualified to be president, unquote. Do you agree that, that that's disqualifying?
5: No, no, it's not disqualifying. Nothing I would do, of course, but uh, but, but not disqualifying. Um, look, I think in this day and age, there's nothing disqualifying for any candidate, unfortunately. Um, we've seen kind of hyperbole on both sides. We've seen extremes on both sides. So... Um you know, when we say, oh, well, that, will, that one issue will drive that candidate out of the race. Back in 1996, maybe something like that was the case. But it's bizarre how, how single issues don't drive and don't cancel out any candidate anymore. But ultimately, the candidates still have to live on their merits. And, and here's the key uh, for Republicans, right? We're, we're constantly talking about uh, uh, January 6th, election dial, all these things in the past. We have to be a party. We have to be a nation that is talking about the future. What are you going to bring us tomorrow? Not what. What are we going to kind of relitigate and get retribution for in the past? And I think if you can't have candidates that do that, that focus on the future in terms of how to manage, how to bring both sides together, how to get all these things done that folks just talk, I mean, no one even wants to talk about Social Security, Jake. 23% cuts. If you are a senior citizen, you are getting a 23% cut in benefits in eight years. That is reality. That is in the law. Someone has to stand up and fix that. Right, And so I think there's a huge opportunity for someone to step forward and say, well, Social Security is the third rail of politics. It's not. It is not the third rail of politics. It is good government. And someone can bring viable opportunities and solutions to something like that, which in, in, in itself is as big of the debt ceiling crisis. Not today, but eight years from now. It's really going hit, to hit America hard.
1: So speaking of focusing on tomorrow, you have said that there's a 61% chance you will ultimately decide to run for president. <laughs> what factors would lead you to decide... To not get into the race. What, what would keep you back?
5: So I got to tell you, the one thing I'm I'm looking at is where can I be most effective, both in terms of of making sure I can be a good governor. I still have a 24-7 job. I'm one of the few people that I still very much focus on my state and the state's in great shape. So that's good. Uh, Making sure that when it comes to where I want to see the party go, these things that maybe I talk a little differently, I talk with a different approach. um, I want more candidates to be empowered. Can I do that more effectively as a candidate? Can I do that more effectively as someone who's kind of traveling the country, maybe speaking a little more freely, kind of being that I, I don't like using the word referee, but kind of like a referee of the 1st of the nation primary, making sure we're pulling the levers to narrow things down. I just want what's best for the party. It doesn't have to be the Chris Sununu show all the time. Uh, it, it's just what's best. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm narrowing down now. Uh, the money's been lined up. The support's been lined up. There's a pathway to win. All that, all those boxes are checked. The family's on board, which is always a big one. Uh, I just got to make sure it's right for the party and right for me.
1: All right, Governor uh, Chris Sununu, we we're going to hear... A decision in June? is that? Do I have that right?
5: Oh, I, mean, I think very soon. I, I don't do coy very well, so when I, when I start doing something, I'm 120% in. So uh, I think you know, pretty soon we'll, we'll make a decision, probably in the next week or two, and, and we'll either be go or no go.
1: All right, Governor Chris Anunu, Republican, New Hampshire. Good to see you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, Saturday night <laughs> deal. Both sides claiming victory over the debt ceiling agreement, but will their rank-and-file members revolt? My panel's next.
3: We've got a lot more excited than than, uh, depressed on this. And I think once people read the bill, they'll be pretty excited. But most important, it's America wins on this
1: one. Most important, it's America who wins on this one. That is uh, Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy pushing back on the notion that Republicans... Uh, aren't happy with him after the, reaching a deal with President Biden. My panel joins me now. So, former Congresswoman uh, Mia Love, uh, what do you think? What do you think of the deal? Do you think Republicans uh, got the upper hand here, or the President Biden did? What do you think?
6: I, I think the American people got the upper hand. So you are like it Speaker of Carthy No, 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 no. The reason, we're here and it's a good thing. That we're actually getting this done. And the reason why we are here is because both parties have acknowledged that we cannot default on our debt. We cannot. We have to keep the commitment that we made to our creditors, our veterans, our seniors. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why we're here, because both parties have acknowledged that we cannot allow this to happen. Now, we do have a spending problem, and both parties need to acknowledge that in order for us to actually work on them. I've seen the budget over and over and over again. When I was in Washington, I couldn't believe how many programs, um, duplicate programs there were, programs that weren't working, programs that were just, it didn't make any sense to me why we weren't tackling some of those and we were spending as much. Social, Social Security is going to be insolvent. going
1: to be insolvent uh, in seven or eight years. Yeah. yeah,
6: according to the CBO, we have to do something about that.
1: What do you think of the deal?
7: No, first of all, I, I, we had Congressman Dustin Johnson on earlier, Dusty Johnson, and I, I thought that his remark that uh, there was nothing in there, no Democratic wins at all, I just thought that was that was laughable. I mean, the fact is, we elected uh, President Biden to go into rooms like this, uh, be an adult in a room full of kindergartners, and be able to bring people together. And that's what he did. He went in and got a deal done. Democrats get a two-year reprieve. And for all the talk about work requirements, I mean, there was not a lot of juice for that squeeze from Republicans. The fact is we've uh, excluded veterans. We've excluded the homeless from these work requirements. We've only uh, raised the age limit from 49 to 54 for those individuals without children.
1: Right. It's, indivi- it's able-bodied individuals right. without without children. Yeah. I mean, that,
7: that's not a whole lot of juice for the squeeze from the Republican Party. And so I think that there, this is a win. And, uh, and the spending doesn't change. And non-defense spending doesn't change. And so when you look at all of these things, for American people, they're going to be like, eh. I don't understand half of the things that are going on in this, in this debate. However, I do know if we default, the stock market is going to go That's down. Right. Things are going to get more difficult from my pocketbook. I'm going to see my investments plummet. And Joe Biden went in there and got it done, and I'm not going to see that happen. So,
1: Scott, there are a lot of conservatives uh, who are upset about it. Congressman Ken Buck called it a debt ceiling surrender. Congressman Ralph Norman said it was insanity. Congressman Bob Good uh, tweeted, no one claiming to be a conservative could justify a yes vote. What do you think? Welcome to
8: divided government. I mean, this is the—this is that position— is not tenable because Republicans don't control everything, just like Joe Biden's position that he held for months and months that I will not negotiate and I will do nothing but a clean debt ceiling. That's why this is ultimately a big win for Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans, because where the president started and where he wound up today, miles apart, he had to come towards Kevin McCarthy. And there are a great checklist of things that any Republican could be happy with. One other issue, defense spending. I'd heard some concerns among maybe people over in the Senate about what was going to happen to defense spending. But because of the big increase in baseline defense
1: in the Omni in December, I think they can live with it. It's going to get a lot of votes. What do you think? A lot of progressives feel like uh, they got sold down the river. What do you think?
9: Well, I think it's important to note that also Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare are all staying safe, not being touched at all. I think the Republicans' obsession with work requirements are offensive to poor people, assuming that people want to be poor and don't um, have the, the fight inside of them to work hard. It's offensive, and I think it will uh, ultimately come a backlash, but I think the way that they were able to negotiate and protect veterans, people who um, are homeless, is really important. I also think, though, um, is Kevin McCarthy going to be able to get it done in his caucus? I mean, we were all sitting here at 2 a.m. in the morning seeing if he can get speaker votes, and we weren't sure what concessions he made. And so can he hold his caucus together, or is he going to have to rely on Democrats yet again so that our country doesn't default?
1: All right, everyone, stick around. we got a lot more to talk about. Governor Ron DeSantis sets his eyes on early voting states. Can he turn things around? Stay with us.
8: to Donald Trump. This is a different guy today than when he was running in 2015 and 2016. I do believe that there's a limit uh, to the number of voters that would consider the former president at this point. Call me whatever you want. Uh, Just make sure you call me a winner.
1: Welcome back to State of the Union. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in his tour of uh, conservative friendly media escalating his attacks on the former president after he made his highly anticipated 2024 campaign announcement this week. My panel's still with me. Uh, what do you think? Obviously, the, the glitchy Twitter spaces moment notwithstanding, it looks like uh, the launch went relatively okay for him. Yeah,
8: he raised a bunch of money, and uh, he's going to go on a tour now of Iowa and New Hampshire. And they need to put the visuals with the audio. I actually thought it was kind of interesting to try to do something non traditional. And he's trying to draw a line, right? Which is, I will not engage with the mainstream media. Trump, of course, still craves their attention and their approval. That's the distinction he's trying to draw. But he really needs to do the visual part of what it means to run for president. He's got a very telegenic family, wife, kids, I mean, the whole nine yards. So when they put that with the other stuff, that'll be helpful, I think, to his overall couple of weeks launch here.
1: Your former colleague, uh, Tim Scott, U.S. Senator Tim Scott uh, from South Carolina also joined the field uh, what do you think of him?
7: He's a complete contrast to Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. I think it's kind of refreshing for the Republican Party to have somebody who doesn't indulge in like, the, the, the bigotry and the xenophobia and just the bickering that Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis want to do. He's also, this is kind of going to be weird, but he's also the only true conservative that's actually in the race right now? How so? Oh, I mean, his voting record in the United States Congress, I mean, is, is more conservative than most. He was aligned with Donald Trump. He's going to try to run away from that a little bit. But his voting record associated with Donald Trump was 97, 98 percent. I mean, he's a true conservative compared to what you're going to try to see Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump do. I know Ron DeSantis is going to try to run to the right of Donald Trump, but I just think that's weird. And Scott knows this better than I am, Mia. I think that's weird because Donald Trump was never a true conservative Especially anyway.
6: Right now that he's, like, going after Donald Trump for criminal justice reform.
7: Well,
1: let's talk about that. Yeah, so Ron <laughs> DeSantis went after Donald Trump from the right, uh, criticizing him for the Criminal Justice Reform Act that he worked on with Jared Kushner, Van Jones. I think Tim Scott voted for it. Correct. I so. um, here's uh, DeSantis criticizing Trump on that.
0: Under
8: the Trump administration, uh, you know, he enacted a, a bill, uh, basically a jailbreak bill. It's called the First Step Act. It has allowed dangerous people out of prison who have now reoffended and really, really hurt a number of people. So one of the things I would want to do as president is go to Congress and seek the repeal of the
1: First Step Act. You voted for the First
6: Step Act. Not only did I vote for it, I worked on it. From the moment I stepped onto the floor in Congress, it was the first piece of legislation that I started working on. And we had people from think tanks and organizations from far right to the far left Hand in hand, he calls
1: it a jailbreak
6: bill. It's he's. It's ridiculous. This was. I mean, we're talking about minimum sentencing requirements going away. Our system before this was a revolving door of Americans going in and out of prison. There was there was no way to actually for people to reform their lives. This was a great accomplishment for America.
1: What do you think?
9: Well, I, I was one of those groups, a um, traditional civil rights groups that worked on the first step. Act. the one thing that is super important is that. Uh, the sentencing uh, requirements that we're talking about here are at judicial judges' description, discretion and under the DOJ. And so when you look at it, it actually was Bill Barr, who was the attorney general who actually helped many of these individuals, who happens to be a Republican, um, and some of the Biden administration's... Um, Uh, Department of Justice, who was actually applying this law. But it's not a clean slate bill. It was more retroactive than uh, forward-looking work.
1: So a new bolt by CNN has more than half the country believing that Biden or Trump (laughs) as the next president, either one, would be a disaster or setback for the country. Uh, uh, Congresswoman, (laughs) your thoughts?
6: I have thoughts about this. (laughs) I have a daughter that's married. I have a daughter that's dating. And whenever they would ask me advice about dating, I would say, look, You don't want to look for someone with baggage. You don't want to have to fix, uh, you know, problems. You want someone with luggage that's going somewhere. I would say the same thing about looking for a president. (laughs) You don't want someone with baggage. I was wondering where this was going. I
7: I like that. You don't
6: want someone with baggage. You want someone with with an amazing vision and strategy for America. You agree
1: with, you agree. It sounds like you agree with the majority of the the public that, that, that thinks no thanks for either one, Biden or Trump.
6: Let's just, yeah, we want a choice. We want a choice. Yeah,
8: I mean, look, most Americans would would rather not do this again, although it seems like that's what the political system is going to give us. A lot of people are talking about how unelectable Trump is. Joe Biden's numbers over the last week, Lord have mercy, independents, Hispanics, Democrats, he's bleeding 30-plus percent of the vote to a couple of nuts in the Democratic primary. I'm telling
7: you, he is in trouble. Joe Biden does not have to be... Uh, better than the almighty. He just has to be better than the alternative. And Ron DeSantis has a problem. The more people meet Ron DeSantis, the less people like him.
1: All right. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much. And I hope you will join me for a CNN presidential town hall with Republican candidate Nikki Haley in Iowa. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern next Sunday, one week from today. On this Memorial Day weekend, how the heroes who died serving our country are being remembered by their fellow veterans who happen to be members of Congress. Stay with us. days ago, a bipartisan group of lawmakers who are also U.S. veterans came together to scrub the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. I asked many of them, come Memorial Day, whom will they be thinking about? Ahead of Memorial Day, these lawmaker veterans are putting aside partisan differences to focus on the scars they all carry from war, scars of profound loss.
3: The long gray line is neither blue nor red. Um, it's more red, white, and blue, and it links every generation.
1: It was really powerful. It was really one of the highlights of being in Congress so far was this, this this morning for me. Congresswoman and Air Force veteran Chrissy Houlihan is a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, well aware she is only here today because so many Americans gave their lives to stop Hitler.
6: I would be remiss not to think about all the people who are on that wall and who are in Arlington and in other places just line after line after line of monuments and stones in tribute to people who have fallen to give us the things that we have uh, this weekend and every weekend to celebrate in our freedoms.
1: This weekend, Congressman Mike Waltz, who organized the event, thinks about his uncle and the men he left behind in Vietnam. I'm thinking about my uncle, Greg Waltz, who was a Huey
8: helicopter pilot, multiple tours in Vietnam, uh, lost uh, members of of his crew. And just as this memorial represents a scar uh, on the country that the Vietnam War was, uh, he still has very deep scars. But I'm thinking of him, thinking of him today and thinking of his buddies that he didn't bring back.
1: Congresswoman and Navy veteran Mikey Sherrill thinks about her grandfather, William Donovan, who was a B-24 bomber pilot in World War II.
6: I think about what life would have been like if my grandfather hadn't come home. Like so many of, of the veterans that we know, so many people on the wall who didn't come home, how that impacts their family.
1: There are only three Vietnam veterans left in the House. Congressman Jack Bergman, Jim Baird, and Mike Thompson. I have friends whose names are on that
2: wall, people, kids that I grew up with and um, people that I serve with. I think about the people I grew up with, uh, Gary Rodriguez, Dan Long, Bob Flannery,
1: Doug Zerba, all from my hometown or real close to it.
8: Oh, I think about them probably
2: every day almost. You don't ever forget it.
1: This weekend, Congressman and Army veteran John James is thinking not just about those left behind on the battlefield, but... Also those who came back, but whose anguish and pain caused them to die by
3: suicide. I'm thinking about uh, my classmate, uh, Benjamin Reckla. He succumbed to his the unseen wounds of war. Um, he, uh, he took his own life um, as, a, as a West Point professor, and uh, I carry him
1: with me each and every single day. And James was far from the only one. One of my
7: soldiers, Corporal Keith Nowicki, I brought him home from a 12-month combat deployment, only to have him uh, succumb to the invisible wounds and take his
1: own life on the phone with his new bride. This this is certainly a day to honor all who made the
7: ultimate sacrifice in combat, but we also have to remember the the wider sort of wounds that we're left with, and especially here at, at the Vietnam Memorial. I'm thinking about James Hassel, Marine from my platoon, a real hero from deep South Alabama, who
5: when we were in a, a building in Iraq, and they were rolling grenades down the stairs. Uh, another Marine, Ryan Borkstrom from Vernon, got grievously wounded, and James put him on his back, ran him through machine gun fire, and, and Ryan's alive today because of that. But you know, James never really
1: healed from his wounds completely, and uh, we lost him after he came back. A reminder for all of us that we need to do more this year to prevent the need to memorialize others next year. Welcome back to State of the Union. This past week marked three years since George Floyd was murdered in the streets of Minneapolis. And now the man who successfully prosecuted that case has a brand new book meant to be a guide for the next case of police brutality to stop it. The book is called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. And the author, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, a Democrat, joins us now. Uh, General Ellison, thanks so much. Uh, Let's let's First of we'll start by talking about police violence and, and define how you see the problem. According to the Mapping Police Violence Project, about 22% of people killed by police last year were black. Uh, that's disproportionate uh, in terms of population. The data also suggests that police killings of unarmed Americans in general has declined in recent years, though of course the numbers, the data doesn't capture the full picture because far too many police departments refuse to share any information. So as somebody with unique insight as the top law enforcement official in Minnesota, how bad is the problem of police violence? And, and how would you even define the problem?
3: You know, I would say the problem is bad, but especially for the victim. The Floyd family, for example, is absolutely devastated. The loved ones of Tyree Nichols, absolutely devastated. And the communities in which these tragic events happen have frayed the necessary trust that uh, that is in those communities. I mean, people, when, the, when these tragic incidents happen involving officer-involved deaths this way, you know, it takes years to rebuild the goodwill that good officers have been trying to build. So uh, there, are, there are a lot of ways to, to measure this problem. Uh, you know, mapping police violence does it in terms of numbers, but, but trust is hard to put a number on. And uh, when you look at, uh, say, the nine-year-old Judea Reynolds, who watched this all and testified at the case, what will she, uh, what will she tell her children when she's 29, 39? So uh, how do you calculate the loss of trust when these tragic incidents happen? I think we've got to break the wheel. We've got to restore the trust. We've got to uh, save lives. And uh, we've got to restore the honor and dignity of a noble profession, policing.
1: So do you think the U.S. is any closer to, as you put it, breaking the wheel, of unnecessary, unaccountable police violence? Do you think we're any closer
3: to achieving meaningful police reform? You know what? Um, I think the answer to that is yes. Although I'll start by saying here are the problems. We have not passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Congress must do that. It is unfinished business. I'll give the president props for issuing an executive order, but Congress has got to do its job and then also the numbers haven't really declined. Some of the uh, un, unarmed deaths have, have declined, but you know we're still making progress on that. But here's what has happened: in Minneapolis, we have uh, we have some really great reform-minded uh, elected, I mean, uh, officials and law enforcement. Chief O'Hara doing a great job. Uh, Commissioner uh, Cedric Alexander. We have reorganized the uh, public safety so that we have police, fire. Uh, mental health intervention, 911 services, all under one uh, umbrella. So that's better. Our police officer standard and training board has reformed and put itself in a position to hold police accountable who violate their license. So some folks want to say nothing's happened, not enough's happened. They're right that not enough has happened, but good things on the ground are happening. You know, in in states like Colorado, they've changed uh, qualified immunity and there have been a number Mm -hmm. of critical and important things but there needs to be more so
1: there's obviously a, a, a racial component uh, to this um but of course. but you just mentioned the tyree nichols case uh which was violence against a black man by black officers uh we recently right. learned that the police officer who shot that 11 year old boy in i believe mississippi the kid who called the police because his mom was uh getting uh, there was some issue with somebody abusing her mom his mom had, that officer was black also Explain how, how you view it, because obviously it's a, it's a much more complicated sure. issue.
3: Well, I think you need to look at the race of the victim. If you live in a society that where racism prevails, what that means is that it's okay to harm black people. That's what it means, whether you're black or white or whatever color you may be. I mean, the fact is, is that in the George Floyd case, you had two white officers, but you had a Hmong officer and a black officer. So, I mean, it's not as if, uh, black officers are not caught up in this cycle of using excessive force, abusing their authority. It happens. Uh, and, and so it's, it's too simple to say only white officers are only killing black uh, victims. But what we've still got to do is introduce meaningful accountability. We've got to prosecute crime, whether you have a badge or not. And we've got to discipline people who violate departmental rules like failure to intervene all the officers who did not protect Tyree Nichols, I believe, are culpable. The officers who didn't protect George Floyd are culpable. And, yeah, it, it, we're living in a society where there's racial bias. Usually it's found in what happens to the victim. Uh, and, uh, and you may have multicultural, multicultural uh, perpetration of the problem.
1: Uh, the book is Break the Wheel. Uh, the author is Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. Thank you so much for your time, sir. I appreciate it.